I think if you have an idea and you have a lot of conviction in it and you feel like you have the skills to operate, to build a team, to build product, you should go for it right away. And I don't think you need to wait or join a company or get a job to do any of that. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is one of Forbes 30 Under 30, Kanan Salah, who co-founded Halo, a transportation ad network, while he was still in college. After striking a business development deal with Lyft, one of the largest ride-sharing platforms in the world at the time, Kanan made the decision to sell Halo to Lyft. Although he was just nine months into launching his business, Kanan decided to use M&A as a way to more quickly achieve his vision for Halo and reduce the competitive threat of the sleeping giant he had just woken up. In this episode, Kanan and I discuss his decision to sell so early in his entrepreneurial journey, how difficult due diligence is after signing an LOI, and his advice for other founders thinking about the M&A process. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kanan Silla. Kinan, thank you so much for being here. I've been really excited waiting to have this interview with you. I've just been amazed how intentional you were building a business in school and then executing on a vision very, very quickly and having one of the kind of biggest companies in the world, frankly, come out and offer to buy your company so quickly. I think our fellow founders are going to learn so much from your experience because I know you're really willing to share a lot of like the mindset and the learnings that you had going through this M&A transaction. So, uh, you know, I also want to say Mark Cuban had this spot and I had no problem bumping him when you said you would take it. So really, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I didn't know I bumped out Mark Cuban. That's a, yep. an honor for me. But thank you uh, for having me. I'm excited to share my process and my learnings from the experience. I think a great place to start really is back in school, right? You're looking for or you're part of a class and looking for a business potentially to start. Can you take us back there of how you developed the idea? Yeah, I, I actually... So I started my company while I was in college. It was during my senior year. And I'd gotten inspired... The previous summer, I did an internship working at a venture capital firm. Really, an, it was actually not even a venture capital firm. It was really an angel investor in Indonesia, of all places. And it was one of the first angel investment groups in Indonesia. They were trying to... It was a very nascent VC and startup ecosystem, and they were trying to grow it. So this was somebody I worked for who... He was European. He had sold a company before and from France, and he moved to Indonesia to help build up their ecosystem there. So I worked with him for a summer, and I was just basically his intern, you know, helping with looking at the deals, helping with their portfolio, all of this miscellaneous stuff. And that's what got me inspired. So I came back to school wanting to start a company after seeing all of these entrepreneurs in Indonesia and thinking that I could do that too. And I really liked what they were building, and I really loved everything about that ecosystem. So when I came back to school, I was looking for, like, what can I start? What can I build? What problems can I solve? And Halo was, was not the first idea, actually, I was working on. There was a couple others that we, I was iterating on, and some were working, some were not working. And then Halo was the one that I really got excited about, got a lot of traction, and then that was the one that we, we took full time. But it was an iterative process for me which I think oftentimes people don't talk about, of like working through multiple different kind of ideas and iterations of the startup and of the business. And ultimately, it came from a, a marketing insight. I, I've met kind of a co-founder of mine who had worked in advertising. And the insight was basically that online advertising had developed a lot in the last 10, 15, 20 years. But 
offline or outdoor advertising had not. So it looked the same. It didn't use any of the tech or the data that had made online advertising so effective. And that's where we saw the opportunity. And we saw rideshare networks as this new burgeoning real estate and sort of like this new mobility network. And that was an opportunity to enter the market through there. So that's where that idea came from. That's great. I mean, there's a lot to unpack the beginning of that, how you're inspired to be an entrepreneur based on seeing all of these investor presentations, right? Seeing all the the different types of businesses and probably the traction that they're seeing. I would venture that you have a huge advantage when you're thinking about starting a company, when you know how it has to be presented to an investor, right? Because you, in fact, are the investor in your company. And the questions that you want answered before you jump in, I bet you learned a lot from reviewing all of that material and probably put you well ahead in, in school. Yeah, I think that that was valuable. Actually, the, the more valuable thing for me was just before I, I that I had I sort of had like a mythical understanding of what startups and entrepreneurs were. And it seemed like something that was out of my reach and was I couldn't do. And then what was more important for me was it kind of demystified when I was there that these are normal people working on normal things. And I didn't think that they were any different from me or Mm -hmm. special. And I thought, actually, I I saw what they're doing. I thought I can do that too. And that was the most important thing. And then there was learning some stuff about how to position to investors. And that that was very helpful. But the most important thing for me was actually the demystification of what entrepreneurship is. Keenan, that's a great point because my partner Brian and I discussed this quite a bit. I came from a family of entrepreneurs, my grandmother, my mother, my father. And so it was natural. And he came from a very different background and that entrepreneurship was not like embedded in the family. It wasn't something that he was exposed to. So I can understand why that would ha- be the bigger impact that you say, wow, this is a career path moving forward and look at the people that are doing it. I can do this too. Yeah, and yeah. that's right. So my context is both, both my parents were physicians and I entered college thinking I wanted to be a doctor and I didn't know what starting a company was. I didn't know how to start a company. I just didn't know how to do any of that. And it seemed like something that I, I couldn't do. It was inaccessible to me. So that, that was very important for me as well. Can you explain what Halo is, right? You're obviously in the advertising industry and why don't you go from there? Yeah, so Halo was a rideshare advertising startup. What that means is that it was a way for drivers, rideshare drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers to earn extra money while they drive by showing ads on top of their car and then inside of their car as well. And they were able to earn extra money without doing extra work. It was passive income from the advertising revenue and it was targeted at full-time drivers who did this for 40 hours a week or more. And they could make significant extra money through this revenue stream. And what we did is, so we provided that to the drivers. We provided the equipment and the platform for the drivers to earn extra money. And they just set it up and then they started earning. And then we also ran the ad network and sold that to the advertisers. So we were selling this new, exciting, interesting advertising medium. And then drivers were benefiting from the incremental uh, earnings on top of their, their ride share earnings. And that was the business. And that's what we started uh, in college and in Philadelphia. And then we expanded to New York. We expanded to a bunch of other markets. And that's what we brought into Lyft and actually expanded beyond that. The, that was Halo. That's awesome. So very quickly, you're able to expand outside of your kind of home city. And you're clearly getting traction, right? There's a real pain or an opportunity for drivers to make more. They're not having to do anything else, right? So I can see right. how they'd be really interested in signing up. And now it's a new way to get brands in front of, I guess, really consumers that have you really have their attention inside and then on top of the car. So how long does it take before you start entering into acquisition conversations? 
We had an unusual in that it was very fast. We started working on it while we were in college. This is late 2018, early 2019. I graduated from college in May 2019. And then we took the company full-time right after that. So we raised our seed round or pre-seed round in May of 2019. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to New York in, in June of 2019. And that's when we everyone dropped, my co-founders dropped out and we took the company full-time. And then we officially sold the company in November of 2019. So just a few months after, but November is when everything closed. Sure. We actually signed the term sheet in, I can't remember if it was August or September, mm -hmm. but it was one of those two. So th this was like three months after we started working on it full time. So it was very fast. Before we get into kind of the term sheet and all that kind of due diligence story that you're going to go through, what was the decision? Like, what are you thinking that says, yup, now we should do this. We should partner with Lyft. We should sell the company and go from being founders to employees at Lyft. Initially for us, we were talking to Lyft in a partnership context. They reached out to us and they said we, we had launched and there was some press. They reached out saying, we heard about your launch. We're interested and we want to get to know this space. And this is an area that we've been following. Let's just get to know each other. And so first, it was just an introduction call. Second, it was it kind of expanded to a partnership call. Like we wanted to do a pilot with them, and it, it was not an M and A conversation for the first four, five, six calls, and it turned into an M and A conversation at, at the end. But for us, really, when we were thinking about it, we just saw the ability to do more with Lyft than alone, and mm -hmm. we saw we were looking for like the one plus one equals three type mm -hmm. scenario, and we saw the ability to do that. We thought we could scale our product much more effectively from within Lyft, and we saw really good synergy on the data side where Lyft knows who the drivers are, they know who the riders are, they know the, where the ride is going, and they have all sorts of data that would be very interesting from an advertising perspective for targeting, for measurement, and, and so forth. So what we really saw is that we would be able to realize this company and this vision much at a much larger scale and much higher impact from within Lyft. So that was the real reason why we decided to sell the company. That's great, right? You've got this vision and you know that you can grow it faster, maybe de-risk the future and, and really get to see your vision through. But there has to be some kind of economic decision because we talk to a lot of founders. It's like, is now the right time to sell? You know, Maybe if I do go another 18 months, I'll get more at the end. Our valuation should be bigger. You and your co-founders must have had that discussion. And you know, it's a very personal decision. And I'm a huge fan of kind of first-time entrepreneurs putting a win on the board. And I mm -hmm. mean, like putting a win on the board, selling to Lyft is enormous what it does for your entrepreneurial career or career in general going forward. So I'm sure you thought of that. But, you know, like financially, was that a discussion where you said like, hey, we should take our chips off the table now because for whatever reason? Yeah, well, for us, it was first, the question was, you know, is this a company that we would want to sell to and we want to partner with this company. And we got to the yes on a philosophical level, kind yep. of separate from economics. Then we started talking about economics and does it, does it make sense for us? And what was helpful is that we hadn't raised a lot of capital. Yep. So it was easy to make a deal that was beneficial, that was good for our investors, and that was good for us, and that was good for Lyft. So yep. we had a lot of flexibility there. And also we knew that they were interested in this space, regardless, kind of with or without us. So for us, what we were thinking is, our decision was, do we want to partner with Lyft now or do we want to compete with them in mm, the future? Yep, yep. And we thought maybe we could compete with them, but we saw a much better future working with them than against them. And that's why we decided it was the right time to sell. 
as well. So that was the other consideration and, and why we didn't say like, let's, let's revisit this in six months or 12 months. It was unclear if the opportunity was going to be available in six or 12 months. Thanks, Keenan. That explains it really well. I think, you know, we just had Melissa Kwan on and she talks a lot about not raising a lot of capital. She bootstraps everything because yep. it gives you so many options. And the fact that you did a small seed, and I love that you said like every shareholder has a good economic outcome, right? It happens quickly. You don't raise a lot of money. So you've created options. I think that's one side that I think people really need to understand. The second that I hear is that you went into this as a partnership or business development relationship with Lyft. And so many times we see that those business development relationships that get very strategic turn into acquisition conversations. So as founders, yep. you really benefit from creating those relationships with the bigger guys. And then to have kind of the foresight, it's like, hey, we either join forces and see our dream through, or we may have a very difficult fight on our hands. I think that that shows a lot of awareness. So amazing. All right. So you, at least you're signing a, a letter of intent, right? An LOI mm -hmm. or a term sheet. And now, right, a lot of people like, okay, I'm selling my company, but the real, real hard work starts. Can you talk about what you went through from signing till November where you're like, it's official? Yeah. I mean, the, the time period between signing the LOI and the deal closing is referred to as the due diligence phase. And the due diligence phase is actually, for the company that's being acquired, the worst, the most painful time period. Yeah. And for the company that's acquiring, it's actually like a very nice time period for you to, basically they get to diligence and they get to look at everything and then decide if they still want to go through with the deal. Mm -hmm. And it's a little asymmetric because the acquiring company can pull out at any moment if they see something that they don't like. Whereas the company that's being acquired is sort of committed and the selling company in theory could pull out. But once you sign an LOI, you often don't want to, you want to, the deal to go through. And it's more so that the acquiring company is diligencing you more than you are diligencing them. But in theory, it's, it's supposed to go both ways. Sure. So this was like actually a very stressful time period. We basically were ready to sell the company and we were just trying to get through the diligence process as quick as possible so we could close. And the period in between was weird. It was a, a weird limbo where we had basically sold the company but we were still waiting for it to be confirmed. It could fall apart. It, you know, they could pull out at any moment, technically. And they were doing really detailed diligence of all of our software, our hardware, our operations, all of our contracts. And they were just looking at every part of the business. It's also a lot of work. I think people don't... That's another part that I didn't realize. It took basically 50 to 60% of my time, my co-founder's time, just answering the diligence questions, doing calls. We had to go meet their executive team. And the diligence process took a lot of energy as well. And we went, you know, it took more of our time than actually operating the company. So it was hard to make progress on the business during this time period. So yeah, it's a, actually like a very, you know, this, the, that time period there is a very anxious time period for founders. And it was for us uh, as well. Yeah, I think we need to do an even better job of educating our founders that are going through that due diligence process of what to expect ahead of time. And some of the advice we do give today is that having somebody in that financial seat, whether it's a controller or up to a CFO, really, really saves the business people, people that are operating the company, a CEO, a lot of time. Because it's very hard to do that due diligence and run a company. And the worst thing you can really do during that due diligence period is let your business slip, right? Because that's ammunition mm -hmm. for the, the buyer to come back and maybe change the purchase price or back out. So I appreciate you saying, 
I would say that it's not difficult. It's just very time consuming. The questions that they ask, you know the answers to, but you just have to keep giving more and more and more. And it seems like that kind of Q&A never ends. I do like that you said it's really due diligence kind of back and forth. Because a lot of times in these exits, there's a structure involved, right, where you're getting equity in the business that you're going to. Well, what is the value of that equity? Do they value that, you know, appropriately? Do you really believe in the health of this business and the future growth? Like, is your equity going to be worth something on the other side? So doing some due diligence there, talking with uh, previous owners who have sold to this acquirer before, I think is usually paints a pretty good picture of what your life will be like, you know, on the other side. So yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. And I completely understand what you say is like, you're emotionally attached to this outcome, right? So you're far less likely as a seller to back out. It's much more likely that the buyer would see something that, that they weren't told. And, and, you know, they get cold feet or they see another deal that they go under LOI that they like better. And for whatever reason, they're the ones backing out. But I appreciate you sharing the challenges there. Yeah. So in theory, like I said, it's supposed to be a two-way diligence, but I've never really seen, I've never seen a seller back out after the LOI, but I've seen a lot of buyers back out. So it's very one-sided. And also obviously as a seller, you agree to exclusive during that time period, you agree not to shop the deal to anybody else. Right. Whereas the buyer can still look at other deals. So it's a very asymmetric one-sided time period. Yep. The only times I really see a seller deciding, hey, I'm going to hold this business is they see it's really, really working and the buyer has come back and tried to change the purchase price, right? So it's like, nope, we're not going to do that. All right. So so you get through it. You're feeling like, okay, now I'm an employee at Lyft. What was that like, the transition from founder running the business to now becoming an employee with a similar mission, right? But, you know, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's a lot different. I think one thing I didn't do enough of, or I, I didn't know enough, and I didn't spend enough time thinking about was what the role of our team and what in each individual's role and my role specifically would be once we joined the company. We spent a little time talking about that, but I should have spent more time actually thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And then also importantly, I, you know, I didn't spend very much time thinking about what is the team, who will the team be once we join, who will we be reporting to? Who will the person that I'm reporting to be reporting to? What's the whole chain? What's our relationship with the other lines of businesses, decision-making, all of that of like, how are we actually going to operate within the larger company? We spent a little bit of time thinking about and, you know, asking questions and diligencing on, but not as much as we should have. And so that transition was a little bit challenging for me. I went from CEO to basically like the head of product or the product manager for that uh, line of business. And thankfully, we weren't folded into the rest of the company. We were kept on the side. But they brought in one of their execs to be the GM of it. So that was a little bit challenging for me to kind of sort of give some of the responsibility of CEO to a GM above me. I got along with that person very well. And and that wasn't the problem wasn't the person. But it was hard for me a little bit to not have that role. And that was an adjustment for me. It ended up being fine, though. In the end, it was just something that we adapted to. And, you know, over the next couple months, we realized that we had new roles. But it was a lot different than running our own company. Certainly it was like night and day different from when we were running our own company. Yeah. Thank you. I think it is really important to try to understand what everyone in your company is going to be doing on the other side, you know, just for the quality of life, your work life balance, what is that going to be and how are you going to be driving, you know, progress? Because 
often, and I don't know your particular case, the structure of these acquisitions has some component of you are going to earn dollars as long as your division performs. And if you are now reporting to somebody else, what is that person thinking? Are they on the same page? Do they want to grow it the same way? So in those conversations, a lot of times we're coaching our founders to get to know that those people and really try to align the incentives for you with the controls that you are actually going to have. And it's, it's a very difficult balance. I can tell you, like the best investment bankers in the world are very good at that, particularly when they know the buyer, like so, uh, if you had a banker that knew Lyft, that would be something that they'd have a really good understanding. I would add to that. It's not just I think we spent a lot of time with the person who was going to be the GM of the new line of business, and we felt very comfortable with that person and their vision and how they wanted to grow. And but right. I think what we should have done more of is actually getting to know the rest of the executive team. Uh. And because it's not just the person that will be leading the division or your manager, they oftentimes have to report to. The rest of the exec team, for especially a big company like Lyft, which is, includes you know CEO, CFO, we had a president, we had a bunch of other roles that were very influential. Mm-hmm. And I think we should have spent a little bit more time making sure that we were comfortable and on the same page about the vision with all of them. Because mm-hmm. something we realized afterwards that it wasn't, not everyone in the company was on the same page about the vision. And that became something we had to navigate later on that we didn't know about until we entered. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I have to go back a bit because I didn't really even ask you, did you have any representation in this M&A transaction, M&A attorney, investment banker, anything like that? We had obviously attorneys, but we did not have any bankers. So you were really negotiating it on your own. Good for you. Yeah, we were. That's right. Good for you. And in, in hindsight, do you feel like you really structured the deal the way it should have been structured? Did you get the value that you were really hoping for? I think we overall did a pretty good job. We could have done better in a few dimensions in retrospect, but we didn't know a lot about how to negotiate it. There's a few areas I think we could have done better. One is that we really did not shop the deal a ton before Mm -hmm. we signed the LOI. We were just very excited about it and we went all in. And we probably should have spent a little bit more time up front shopping before we signed the original LOI that puts you in the exclusive period. Mm -hmm. We were a little worried, and this was naive, we were a little worried that they might get offended by us shopping the deal. Mm-hmm. And then that might, you know, dissuade them from going through. But I think we should have that, that this is something we should have done much more a little bit more aggressively than we did. And then the other area too, is that we could have structured it better. There's there's a lot of tax considerations that we were not very careful about that we, we could have structured it in a much more tax optimized or tax yeah. advantageous way. Yep. If we had made that a priority, and we had focused on it. But We did not. And that was another area we could have done much better. We could have been more creative with how the transaction happened, where ours was kind of like cash and equity. So like cash up front and then equity over time as we are an employee and as we stay at the company after the acquisition. And we could have structured that better so that we would have paid less tax overall. And that's an area that we we could have improved. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, shopping the deal is an interesting topic, right? When somebody comes in and, and is offering to buy your business and you don't want to offend. But we see that you know, every single week we have a founder that has been, they receive an inbound offer and they say, what, what do we do? And time and time again, what I can tell you is that the acquiring company, if they realize that you are going to get an investment banker on your team, that means that you are serious about selling And that investment banker is going to package you really effectively for them to understand the value and help work out 
a structure that makes sense for both sides, right? So that's one side of bringing the banker in. The other thing it does is when you have that investment banker that's focused on your particular sector, the lifts of the world know you know, with one phone call, they could introduce competition into this. So we want to make this run really smoothly. We want the timeline to be favorable. We have the first advantage. Let, let's take advantage of it. We have the first mover advantage. Let's take advantage of it. And so, you know, getting representation actually really helps. And there is really very few times have I ever seen that a very serious buyer who is in the business of growing this way by buying companies gets offended by you getting really smart and getting a team around you and potentially bringing competition to a deal. So I really recommend that people get that kind of help. From a tax perspective, yes, yeah, certainly, you know, the large buckets of is it a um, asset purchase or is it a stock deal? I know in, in the transactions that I always did, we were very aware of where the tax benefits would be. And we made it very right. clear if you go to change this post LOI, you're going to have an enormous tax gap to make up. And we would say this to the buyers. So we would have no games kind of played at the end. And I learned that kind of the same way you did is the first time like, oh man, did I mess that up and I got taken advantage of or I could have structured it better. So I appreciate you sharing that. Look, this this is an awesome story. What do you think the benefits of you starting a business with co-founders, raising capital, and then selling it to one of the top companies in the world, certainly in your the space that you're focused on, and now working there, doing your earnout. What has that done for your career beyond giving you some kind of financial flexibility? I think what you said of for first-time entrepreneur to get the first win on the board is very important. And it builds a lot of credibility for the next time you plan to and for, for me, that's been, there's, there's two areas where I've got a lot of value. One was getting the first win on the board and then using that to build my reputation for anything I do next, but especially if I'm going to found another company. And then the other area where it's been extremely helpful is that it was very helpful to operate, to join Lyft. I had never worked at a company before because I started my company out of college and I never really had a, actually like a job or ex experience working in a tech startup or a big tech company. So it was actually very helpful. I like learned a lot of skills while I was at Lyft, uh, particularly on the corporate professional side mm -hmm. and how a company that big operates, how they develop products, all the different functions, learning what a big company, how they structure it, how it works together. That was all things I didn't know before going in. So learning that was actually foundational for me at least and something that I wouldn't have gotten if we had kept, you know, maybe I would have gotten it if we had grown really big, but it would have taken a long time to... Sure to get there and I would have learned it first time. So that was also extremely helpful for me over the last three, four years. Knowing what you know now, would you recommend to other founders to go try to get a corporate job in the industry that you're, where you have all your ideas or is it just, you know, jump in when you're young enough, jump in and, and just go at it and start a company? I think if you have an idea and you have a lot of conviction in it and you feel like you have the skills to operate, to build a team, to build product, you should go for it right away. And I don't think you need to wait or join a company or get a job to do any of that. And if, if you're a fast learner, you'll pick up all these things that you don't know along the way. And you'll actually learn it much faster as an yep. entrepreneur. So I don't think you should, you know, if, if you have an idea, you have a team, you have conviction, you can raise money, you can do everything you need to do to build a business, yep. go for it. And you should do that. You shouldn't wait. But if you, there's a lot of people who want to start companies but they don't know exactly what they want to do yet. They don't have the idea. 
or if, if they have the idea, they don't know how to execute on it or they're uncertain. And for those people, I think that would be, it would be wise for them to go work at, take a company that you, you think is, take a company that you respect and is a company that resembles one that you would want to build in the future. So if you want to build a, you know, fast growing startup in a certain industry, go join the best startup in that space. That's at the stage you want to be or similar or getting there. And you'll learn a ton there about all the things you don't know. And you'll probably get an idea. You'll meet people and all the skills that you feel like you're lacking. You'll, you'll learn them there. So I would say it's a, it's a more kind of like dependent on where you are in your confidence in your ability to build a company. And then also the conviction that you have in the idea. Kinan, it's great advice. It's not like a one size fits all, right? You just, everybody's a little bit different. Their skill sets are different. So yeah, I think that that's awesome advice. All right. So now you're, you know, on your way out, you're good doing your next thing. Do you want to talk about what you're up to next? It's still, still too early to talk about it, but I'm working on some new exciting stuff that I'm working on a new company. I'm very excited about it. And planning to share stuff hopefully soon, but not quite ready yet. So given that you've gone through that kind of really accelerated entrepreneurial journey from startup to exit, are you going to build this second one differently now that you know what kind of that outcome can look like and what that outcome is somewhat dependent on? Will you do, do anything differently this time? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of many, many, many learnings, mostly of things that we did wrong the first time that I would not do again. And I would do it differently the second time around. One lesson that's very important is I I really appreciate how raising small amounts of money or not raising a huge amount of capital gave us immense flexibility. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I would want to continue doing. It gave us immense flexibility when we were deciding what to do because we didn't we didn't have a huge press stack that we needed to, if we wanted to sell the company that we needed to fill. And we also did not have a time clock of when we needed to raise our next round or certain growth metrics that we needed to show in the next you know, 12 months. And we also didn't have, we didn't have a lot of investors with board seats and so forth who could kind of shape the decisions or had the ability to influence whether or not we would go a certain direction. And that was helpful. So I think like the flexibility, especially early on, you don't know how far the company is going to go, how big it's going to get, was, was very helpful. And I'd want to do that again. The things that I would do differently second time around are frankly on, you know, when we were starting the, the first time, I don't think we knew how to hire very well. It was something we were very bad at. Yep. We made some good hires. We made some really bad hires. And we were hiring mostly kind of, you know, randomly. We, uh, we didn't know what, you know, a good engineer or like any, uh, any job function, what a good one looks like because we hadn't really seen many. We knew mm-hmm. friends and we knew a couple, but we hadn't seen what an excellent person in every single one of the job functions looked like. And now I've seen a lot more. I've met many more. I've seen many different teams. I know what, what excellent looks like. And I also know kind of what companies to hire from how to run a recruiting playbook. We didn't know how to do any of that stuff um, initially. So that's something that you know, I, would do, I would do differently second time around. And there's also a lot of other, a lot of other small tactical things that you, that you learn along the way. But another big one is I think I have a better understanding of the different functions that you need to build. And when you see a big company, you understand, okay, companies have, they have designers and they have engineers and then they have product managers. And then you, on the sales side, they may have AEs and SDR and you understand what's the machinery and sort of like, what are the building blocks Mm -hmm. and what are the Legos that you need to put together in your company? What are all the capabilities that you need to have and the functions that you need to be excellent at? Whereas the first time around, we didn't have that mental model of, you know, what a well functioning company looks like and what the, all the primitives 
of a well-functioning company are. And that's something that I would be much more intentional about. Sort of like, it's going to sound like org design, which actually sounds very corporate, but mm-hmm. you can think of it as like team structuring. Like who, who are the different people that you need and what do they do? And when do you need them when? That was something that I didn't, we didn't know the first time that I would be much more intentional about the second time around. This is awesome. I, I can hear, right, that you'll be very intentional about a lot of things. The funding I can't agree with more. I think this is awesome advice. I'm really excited for your next venture. I feel like you're going to build it and sell it in like 15 minutes because this is like has to be a record selling. So building something. Well, no, actually, we yeah, actually like next time around, I hope not to have such a short journey. I actually hope for that we can build and operate it for a longer time period and, and maybe maybe sell it, maybe not sell it. But one of my hopes for the next company is that uh, we we have a much longer journey and we can get to a, a larger company, company size and a deeper stage than the first time. Well, Keenan, you're certainly in rare air to have built something so quickly, have a great exit, and then you know be at the beginning of your you know entire entrepreneurial career. So, really, wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for sharing so much. The advice is, I think, is invaluable for a lot of people. Just really appreciate you being here with us. Great, thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes. Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.